welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning, everyone. As we dig into this new series in Isaiah, you can tell it's going to be a fun ride. Lots of fun, interesting topics. And to hear Amy Spencer say the word whore on camera was interesting as well. So God's word is God's word. And so we're going to dig into this as we navigate through this huge, massive book, which I have not taught before. So in many ways, I'm learning with you, and I'm happy to do my best to answer questions. If you want to email me during, during the week, I'll do my best. But 66 chapters. We're going to take a look at chapter 1 today. We'll peek a little bit into chapters 65 and 66. But tradition has it, for this faithful prophet named Isaiah, that five years after King Hezekiah had died, the evil King Manasseh, which is Hezekiah's son, captured the prophet Isaiah, after years of being a faithful prophet, captured Isaiah and sawed him in two because of his preaching. Now, I thought I had reason to be nervous before I got up to preach. Isaiah paid the ultimate price. This is a uh, fantastic leader. Uh, This book is filled with uh, incredible poetry. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he led a faithful life. And I'll tell you, you know, being a pastor during COVID shutdown, going on a year, seven months plus, right? Racial divisions, economic uncertainty, contentious politics. It's all been incredibly hard. But I'll tell you, it's nothing compared to what Isaiah went through. Isaiah's faithfulness is something that's going to resonate with us over the next several weeks as we look at this book and uh, this man that God used to bring God's truth. Now, Isaiah boldly proclaimed God's truth while experiencing resistance from his own people. These these were his listeners, uh, his own uh, people that killed him and confronted him, persecuted him. And this is why, partly why this is a tough book to read. Uh, Actually, one graduate student studying the book of Isaiah and the prophets said this. He says, you know, the prophets are weird and confusing, and they all sound alike. If you've ever tried to read the prophets in the Old Testament, I felt like this myself. They're weird, they're confusing, and they all sound alike. And here's the fact, here's a fun fact for you. Isaiah is kind of weird. I said it. I, I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah walked around Jerusalem, where he was a prophet, for three years naked, preaching God's word. That's kind of weird, right? We'd all admit, okay? So imagine my next, uh, you know, annual review, Pastor Tim, preaching, pretty good, a little long-winded at times, but not pretty good. Hey, fiscal year end, thanks for encouraging people to give tithes and offerings, thumbs up. Hey, you know when you walk around town in your underwear? That's got to stop, okay? you imagine? Isaiah, though, he was so aligned with God that he was willing to humiliate himself so that God might be glorified. Let that sit with you for a moment. That could be end of sermon right there. He was willing to humiliate himself for the chance that his sovereign God might be glorified. Let me unpack glorified for you. That 
God's goodness might be revealed. That's one way to think about glorified, that fancy church word. That through my humiliation, as I become lesser, as John the baptizer says, that God's greatness and goodness would be more magnified and seen. Isaiah was willing to humiliate himself for the chance that God's truth might go forth. Oh, that's my prayer, that I had that much confidence in the Lord to do that. See, I I believe as we learn about the prophet Isaiah these next several weeks, we're going to see and sense God stir within us a desire to serve him faithfully amidst opposition, just like Isaiah. I'm going to share five more observations. These aren't in totality, but as we do an overview of the book of Isaiah, I have five more things I want to point out. The first of all, that the book of Isaiah is a treasure to behold. Secondly, I want to show you how Isaiah imagines in the first five chapters a courtroom scene. Very interesting. Thirdly, that Isaiah paints a grand vision in his 66 chapters. We'll unpack that a little bit today. Fourthly, Isaiah points to a humble servant who's to come. And then fifthly, Isaiah reminds us that God is in control. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you prayed in John 17, 17, that we, your followers, would be sanctified by the truth and that your word, God, is truth. And so, Lord, may this word of God, as we study Isaiah today, resonate within us because of the power of your Holy Spirit, who is in charge of our lives as believers, to shape us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, and to encourage us. Lord, may your word not return empty as we know it won't. We pray into that reality In your name, amen. Well, let's dig in. First of all, the book of Isaiah is a treasure to behold. The Isaiah prophesies during the latter half of the 8th century BC, we believe, during the the reign of at least four named kings. In Isaiah 1.1, it says, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. At this point, In the nation of Israel, it's actually split into two. There's a civil war, north versus south. Israel's to the north, Judah's to the south. That is where we have Isaiah and King Hezekiah. Now, we're not exactly sure um, the time period precisely, but either the northern kingdoms have already been overcome and attacked and taken away, or they're about to. So there's a lot of distress happening in the region and particularly surrounding Judah, the southern kingdom. And they're particularly feeling this pressure because of Assyria, the new superpower in the region, world superpower. Now, the book of Isaiah, it spans not only history going from creation to eternity, but also spans geography. So it focuses not only on Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom, and not just the northern kingdom as well, but the whole world is what it covers, And Isaiah, what he does, he communicates both words of hope and horror. And yet, Isaiah never loses focus on its main central theme, which is God himself, the glory and goodness of God. Now, Isaiah's prophecies describe a period of destruction and future exile. 
And Isaiah also addresses a hope that these future exiles, that they will return one day and come back to this very land, and the land will be rebuilt. And Jerusalem itself will be restored. And so now there is some debate as to Isaiah's authorship and composition, and Isaiah's poetic prose, as you read all 66 chapters, it both elicits praise for its beauty and frustration for its complexity. People just don't understand what he's talking about. But I believe these words of Isaiah were given by God through the Holy Spirit thousands of years ago, and it's like a treasure to be discovered. And I hope today we'll just be kind of digging in and say, Holy Spirit, teach me personally, teach us as a community, help us to uncover this treasure. Speak something to me today that you want me to hear, Lord. Now, I don't know if you heard the news recently, a tourist from California, a couple traveling in Arkansas, they went to a public park that's known for rough cut diamonds. You hear the story? And within 40 minutes, she found, the wife, a 4.38 rough cut diamond. And all over uh, the news, it was reported. And the first thing I thought about, well, that's reportable taxable income now to the IRS, actually. So <laughs> next time, you know, don't you know, post it. Um, but anyway, so you have this incredible treasure discovered, right? And I see the book of Isaiah like this. And I'm not saying in the next 40 minutes you're going to have this uh, incredible find, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, in these next few minutes, God could grab your heart and grab your attention. Because if we commit our attention to the Spirit's leading, we're going to find Isaiah like a newly found treasure. I want you to imagine that thousands of years ago that God inspired by his Spirit for Isaiah, for these words to come forth and eventually be written down on a scroll or a parchment. And God knew thousands of years ago there'd be this group of people, a handful of people sitting at Carmel by the sea, trying to dig into Isaiah. And I believe God has a word for you. That, that God in his wisdom and majesty, that he'd know that we, we were going to study these very scriptures today. And that we're going to catch a glimpse of Isaiah's portrait of the majesty of God and the frailty of humanity and of a servant king to come and of a future hope that gives you hope today. For the power of the Spirit we believe God can do that. It's outside of our space and time, yet he enters in and wants to speak to you. So let me ask you, are you in need of some hope today? We serve a good, majestic, kind, merciful, powerful God who is not limited by space and time and can speak right into you right now. God might be grabbing your attention today. And so we want you to turn to God who is here. Turn your attention to him. Recognize your need for forgiveness or thank him for the forgiveness in Christ if you already know the Lord. And then we're gonna ask this humble King Jesus to clean me and to fill me with hope. I want you to pray that with me as we read God's word. The second point is Isaiah 1, particularly in verses, those verses all the way through chapter 5. It imagines a courtroom scene. Now, to give you a little background, Isaiah has spent his whole life serving kings in Jerusalem. But his nation at this point, we believe, is vulnerable to the ruthless leader of the Assyrians. His name is Sennacherib, and he is advancing his army all around 
Isaiah's hearers in Jerusalem. The people hearing these words or reading the scroll at this time of the writing knew that their life was very fragile. Their lives were very insecure. In the first five chapters, you're hearing me say, resemble a courtroom scene, most people agree. And see, in this courtroom scene, God's judgment against his own people's idolatry and injustice His judgment's going to come to Jerusalem through these invading armies of Assyria and a new superpower to come, Babylon. So the book of Isaiah is is picturing God giving judgment. And the first five chapters is this courtroom scene. Unless the people repent, judgment is to come. And so in this courtroom, the evidence against God's people is clear. Their sins are evident. Their worship looks good on the outside, but is rotten on the inside. Look at verse 11. What to me, God says, is the multitude of your sacrifices? God is saying, I hear you sing. I see the money you give. I know you come to church, but what good is it? God is not impressed with their empty worship. And later in Isaiah 29, 13, God says something similar. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And Isaiah 121 describes God's people like a prostitute, right? That word, the whore. Because corruption amongst its leaders, the people who should be talking about God and modeling what it's like to be uh, God's good people, they're failing. They're being bribed. They're probably doing crooked business deals. Workers are being treated unfairly and greed marked God's people instead. Isaiah 30, 18 says it clearly. It says, the Lord is a God of justice. In this courtroom, the God of justice is facing his leaders that are failing. And Isaiah 117 alludes to this. It says, learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Our God is a God who cares that justice is being done. He cares about the weak. He cares about the poor. God wants his people to live up to their calling to bless others not oppress others, to bless others, not to crush others, to bless others, not to take advantage of others, to bless others, not to reject them. You know, our Operation Christmas Child project, these little boxes, it's a chance to show God's love in some small way with these basic hygiene things and some toys and a gospel message showing kids who are suffering Many from injustices of no cause or fault of their own. God is a God of justice. Could this be a glimpse that people might see that glorifies God? You know, a pastor I know is working with Afghan refugees, those who've been evacuated because under the threat of the Taliban, they're coming to countries all over the world, but some are coming to our nation as well. And my pastor friend wants to make sure that Christians are some of the first to greet and to serve and to befriend those who fled the violence of the Taliban. 
And he is believing God to open a door for the gospel through these acts of kindness. He's believing God to open a door for seed of the servant Jesus that these friends, whom just a few months ago, there was no chance for us to bring the gospel to them. Oh, guess what God is doing? He's bringing them to us so that we can show them there's a God of justice. And he's revealed through the person of Jesus' son. See, God cares for the foreigner far away, and God cares for the foreigner in our backyard. God's a God of justice. See, Isaiah speaks of this God throughout all 66 chapters. And though Isaiah doesn't hold back in communicating God's wrath against his disobedient people who aren't executing justice, God is also communicating his mercy. So let me ask you this. If you were on trial for being a devoted disciple of Jesus, would there be any evidence against you to show that you're a devoted follower? Glorifying God, revealing his goodness, showing his justice like God is saying through Isaiah in chapter one and all 66 chapters. Do what's right, live up to my name. What would the world see? Thirdly, I want to show you this grand vision that Isaiah paints. Isaiah gives this vision of a sovereign God who confronts sin and injustice while also pointing to grace and restoration. Look at verse 19. If you're willing and obedient, my people, my sinful people, you will eat the good things of the land. See, God leaves room for repentance. In verse 2, it says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, in this courtroom scene, Isaiah is the prosecuting attorney, in a sense. And Yahweh, the Lord, is the plaintiff, saying how he's been wronged. And God's rebellious people are the accused, and heaven and earth are the witnesses in this scene. And the Lord says this in verse 18, come now, sinful people, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. First of all, God's not very good at this lawsuit thing. He wasn't supposed to pull his punches this early. He's supposed to stick it to him, bring all the charges. Here are the witnesses, heaven and earth. They deserve wrath. And already he's like, wait, He's like a father grieving over wayward children saying, I just want you to come home. I just want you home. But you got to turn back to me. You got to turn away from this way of sin. You got to turn back to me. God says, let us reason together. Can't you see that living for yourself is going to destroy you? Can't you see that I want good things for you? Can't you see that the way you're living isn't the way of truth? Can't you see? He's pleading. Trust in me, not in your own strength, not in your own logic. Trust in me. So I want you to see in chapter 1, Isaiah opens with heaven and earth as witnesses. We're going to see in a moment, Isaiah ends the prophecy in chapters 65 and 66 with heaven and earth as an inheritance. 
Isaiah ends with this picture, Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. You have to turn there. But in Isaiah 65, God says this, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Now, if you're a Christian in this room, if you're a Christian listening, you can't help but hear Revelation 21 and 22. The new city, everything fixed. Hope, no more tears. God delights in me. You see, Isaiah reminds us, fourthly, that God is in control. From beginning to end, this picture of heaven and of earth, that God has your life in his hands. Isaiah 66, 23, hear this. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. This is a word of hope for those who surrender to the king. You're in his hand. You will endure. That promise is for followers of Yahweh who sent, as we'll see, his servant. And we know him as Jesus. You want a life that endures, not just for this life, but forevermore? You say yes to the king. You see, Isaiah, his vision magnifies the reality that we serve a sovereign God who holds our very lives in his hands. And we may not like what God is allowing us to go through right now. We're like, God, you're not doing a very good job if I'm in your hands. We may not like it. But he is a good God who will not waste our pain as we turn towards him. You hear that? For the Christian... When you turn towards God, your pain won't be wasted. That is not a promise if you don't give your life to Jesus. And that'd be hard for some of you to hear. You're not followers of Christ yet. There's no promise without Jesus that your pain isn't a waste. The abuse you endured, that bitterness that still locks your heart. Without Jesus, that pain is pain. It's terrible. But with Jesus, your pain can have a purpose. I'm not saying the pain was good, but your pain can have a purpose. It reminds us as we read Isaiah, God is in control. Isaiah 46.10 says this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please Friends, when we align ourselves to the sovereign Lord, we can have peace that we are secure in in his purposes. So I'd like to ask most weeks, do you have that kind of security? Because you have surrendered your life to Jesus. Again, there's no promise that your pain will make sense outside of King Jesus, the author and king of your life and of eternity and time itself. Isaiah's listeners, they need to be reminded that God is in control and that is no less pertinent today. 
for Afghan Christians who are being hunted down by the Taliban, God is in control. For Nigerian Christians being kidnapped and persecuted right now, God is in control. For Christians in America divided over politics and vaccine mandates and doctrinal debates, God is in control. For the 16 American missionaries that were just kidnapped in Haiti, women and men and children, God's in control. And for you today, as you battle cancer and as your relationships have just frayed over the last 16, 17, 18 months, and the bankruptcy, on the lawsuit, and that strained relationship that doesn't seem it's ever going to come back together. God is in control. You may not like the way God is handling your life, but he wants you to trust him. He wants to give you strength to endure, and he does want to bring healing. God is in control. You know, yesterday, some of us gathered, about 100 of us, in the forest cedar just up the street, and we prayed. And I was struck as we were outdoors and everyone could hear us singing praise music. I was thinking of all of our neighbors who may not be so into worshiping Jesus at times, that we were, you know, singing loudly, the music was going, you can kind of see people walking by sometimes, you can hear other people playing competing music. I thought it was kind of on purpose, to be honest, but God bless them if you're listening. God bless you. So... But we started singing a refrain of this old, wonderful hymn, I decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And the word just struck me. I was like, wow, this is pretty crazy what we believe. This is pretty wild. I think Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. That he's the king of all and he's coming back. And he's going to redo this world and the heavens and earth and a new city and new Jerusalem. I'm going to be living with him for eternity because I've surrendered my life to him. This is wild stuff. And I've decided to follow Jesus. No matter what our neighbors might say, no matter if Jesus be mocked, though my faith in Christ might be ridiculed as closed-minded and irrelevant, Though my circumstances might bring me financial, emotional, relational pain, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. He's in control. See, Isaiah models for us a faithfulness to endure to the end when there will be this new heavens and new earth that Isaiah 55 and 56 and Revelation 21 and 22 talk about. And we will be in our new home with King Jesus and we'll see him face to face and we long to hear these words that he says he will say to you and to me who have surrendered to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Oh Lord, give us endurance to the end that we might know right now in the midst of our chaos, you are in control. Lastly, Isaiah points us to a humble servant to come. You know, Isaiah 1, verse 26, it says, God will restore. And even in chapter 1, there's this picture of hope. Even though other chapters say it more clearly, there's a hint of hope of restoration for the people and the city that is destitute and broken. And this is what I marvel at. When Jesus walked this earth, 
Jesus himself, I hope you know, he was known as a Jewish rabbi. Jesus was a Jew. I hope that's not new news of you all, but Jesus was a Jew, a good Jew, and he was a rabbi and revered by his Jewish followers, all of them who were Jewish in the beginning. And Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, he must have studied Isaiah. He must have read that passage we just read. He must have memorized it as a good Jewish rabbi. He must have recited the poetry of Isaiah and all the pain and all the hope in its words. And isn't it amazing to think, as Jesus was studying Isaiah, he was studying himself. Isn't that wild? He was like, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's me too. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Oh, yeah, that's what God is calling me to do. Isn't that amazing to think? As Jesus knew Isaiah was prophesying about him, his ministry, his life, his atoning death, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah prophesied this would be an Isaiah, in God's wisdom, would be writing down words that Jesus himself would be reading from a scroll. Wild, isn't that? So I want you to close your eyes. I just want you to listen to Isaiah 53, these very words that Jesus himself, probably himself, read, memorized. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, Isaiah prophesied something amazing. That even though God's people were found guilty of not turning back to him, God was still faithful to send a servant king. A servant king to take on our sin and to make a way back home for all who would confess their sin and admit, I need a savior. I can't clean myself up on my own. The blood stain of sin that Isaiah 1 talks about. I can't clean it off. I need someone else who has the power to wipe the stain clean. We know him as Jesus. You know, Isaiah tells us that even in God's great judgment of our sin, there's greater mercy to be found. I'm going to close with a story. On a September 11, 2001, I know each of you, if you were alive back then, some of you weren't, you knew exactly where you were on that fateful day. I'm going to tell you a story about a man on that same day. His name is Muhammad Faridi. He was celebrating the death of innocent Americans by handing out cookies and candy in front of his mosque in Iran. And on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I and others of you, we were in Devendorf Park, and we were remembering that faithful day and offered prayers of hope, hope in Christ 
for our nation and for our world. And on that same day, Muhammad Faridi, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you'll never guess what he was doing. He was baptizing seven Muslims who were converting to Christianity in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Muhammad says this, that's the story of redemption. That's what my God can do. And his name is Jesus. Have you decided to put your trust in this humble king? The one who chose to be beaten and bloodied and killed so that guilty sinners like you and me and Muhammad could fall down on our face and say, forgive us, cleanse us, come into us, lead us, Jesus. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Would you stand with me as I close this in a prayer, as the worship team comes back up? Lord Jesus, we don't know how things will end exactly, but we know that you are holding us in your hands and that for those who confess our sins and for those who put our allegiance in you, King Jesus, that we are secure, that you are in control. But Lord, even for us Christians, we need to continue to confess our sins. And so Lord, we confess, we forget about you. We confess that we have made you at times a supplement in our lives, secondary and primary has been ourselves. that we're, We've been sitting in the driver's seat. We care more about our possessions, our reputation, our own personal happiness, more than we care about glorifying you. Well, Lord, may we be willing to humiliate ourselves for the sake that you might be glorified. And so, Lord, we recommit ourselves to following you. And for anyone who's listening who has never said yes to this humble servant, King Jesus, if you would confess your sins, that you need cleansing from your sin and you need a savior, you can invite him in right now and say today too that I have decided to follow Jesus. Thank you, God, for your kindness. In the midst of the wrath and the judgment, you offer us hope right now. Continue to speak to us, Lord, as we sing, as we proclaim truths about your goodness and your kindness and our need for you. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.